Chapter 8 of From North Carolina to Southern California Without a Ticket and How I Did It. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From North Carolina to Southern California Without a Ticket and How I Did It by John Peel. Chapter 8 I stayed in Tucson one night, and while knocking about the streets the next day, I met a young man down at the depot who introduced himself as J. C. Allen, from some town in the east which I have forgotten. Allen had landed in Tucson but a few days before, with about the same intentions I had, but for some reason had taken a violent dislike to the town, and now wanted to go to Los Angeles. I had caught the fever of travelling pretty hard myself now, and as Allen was a sociable sort of chap as well as a good talker, it didn't take him long to convince me that Tucson was a poor town for us to remain in. Then, as two young fellows will, we soon came to an understanding that we would stick by each other through thick and thin, and work our way to Los Angeles, California. Like most fellows who stay in the West long, Allen was a great bull-con man, hot-air man. He told me they were already picking oranges around Los Angeles, and paying pickers the highest kind of prices. My own common sense ought to have told me that this wasn't true, and that Allen merely wanted me to go with him for company but I hadn't been in the West long, and the poorest kind of bull-con dealer found in me an easy mark. I readily became as anxious to reach Los Angeles as Allen himself. "'How do you propose going?' I asked. "'A Mexican railroad foreman is going to ship me to Gila City, Arizona, tonight, to do construction work, and I'll try to get him to ship you, too,' he promised. Late in the afternoon the Mexican in question showed up at the depot. Allen took him aside and had a long talk with him, during which time the Mexican glanced at me several times. Finally he got up and went into the depot. Allen now hurried over to me. "'Blank the luck!' he exclaimed. "'What are you wearing that white collar for?' "'The Mexican has gone after me a pass, but he says you look too sporty. Hurry to your stopping place, quick, and get off them togs, and I'll try him again.' I had put up within a block of the depot, and in a short time I had made the change and returned, bringing my dress suit case. Allen had already received his pass and was anxiously waiting for me. "'Hide your dress suit case,' he whispered. I had barely done so when the Mexican came out of the depot. It was nearly dark now, and there was a surging crowd of ladies and men on the depot yards waiting to meet the incoming train. Allen pushed his way through the crowd, and once more directed the Mexican's attention towards me. The Mexican had no sooner glanced at me than he took out a pencil and wrote something on Allen's pass. A few moments later he left the depot and went hurrying up the street, and Allen approached me with a smile. Upon his pass had been scrawled the two words, and friend. Shortly after, we were comfortably seated in a Southern Pacific passenger coach, and bound far out upon the desert to Gila City, 180 miles away. Allen had but thirty-five cents, while I was again stranded without a penny. Just as day was breaking, we were roused by the conductor and put down at Gila City. It's an unusual thing for a passenger to get on or off at Gila City. Some of the passengers straightened up in their seats and watched us with interest, as we slowly got our things together and left the car at this desolate spot, located almost in the very middle of the desert. We were yet three hundred miles from Los Angeles, though Yuma, the next town, was but twenty miles away. Gila City contains one small store, about the size of a man's hand, two small dwellings and a miniature depot. The population numbers but four or five people. One thing is plentiful there, though. 
long-eared jack-rabbits and cotton-tails by the thousand this section abounds with thousands of quail too and on warm days not a few rattlesnakes can be seen sunning in the desert the shanty cars of the construction company stood on the side track and as there was nothing else to do we went over to them the men were already up and the section foreman's wife was preparing breakfast we told the foreman that the Mexican had sent us down from Tucson, and were engaged by him at $1.50 per day and board. Presently we were invited into one of the cars for breakfast. The men seated around that table presented a picture seldom seen. Besides Allen and myself, there were three dark-skinned Mexican, a half-breed Indian, the foreman, who was a Texan, and two ex-cowpunchers, besides an Irishman and a Chinaman. As for the breakfast itself, I have never eaten better grub anywhere, and the cooking was splendid. Notwithstanding the motley crew around us, both Allen and myself made a hearty meal. The teams were soon hitched, and after proceeding down the track about a mile the day's work commenced. I was given a scraper team to drive, and Allen was put at pick and shovel work. As soon as the sun rose, it quickly got hot, and by eight o'clock it began to sting through our clothes. At ten o'clock the heat was so intense that all hands quit work and went back to the shade of the shanty cars. Neither Allen nor myself had ever worked under such a hot sun before. Both of us came near fainting, and even when we reached the shanties, perspiration was still running from every pore. All work was suspended until four p.m. In this part of the world, owing to the intense heat, a day's work commences at five a.m. and lasts until ten a.m., in the middle of the day you take a six hours rest. Commencing work again at four o'clock in the afternoon, you work until seven p.m., making an eight-hour day. On the morning of the second day, Allen got pretty badly hurt. A big boulder, becoming dislodged from above his head, rolled down the cliff where he was at work, and struck him a painful blow upon the back of his hand. Already overheated from exertion in the hot sun, his injured hand threw him into a dark chill, and he was forced to quit work some of the mexicans and others standing around began laughing as if they thought it a great joke the foreman instead of sympathizing with him joined in the laugh the entire gang had put us down as tenderfeet there was no use getting mad for these tough-looking chaps were too many for us and we did the next best thing we gave up our job and walked back to the shanties at ten o'clock the men came in for dinner when we informed the foreman that we had thrown up our job and that he could settle with us "'Settle nothing,' said the big fellow, laughing. "'You've not worked enough to pay your fare from Tucson yet. You can get your dinner here, and after that meals are fifty cents apiece if you dine in these cars.' We walked over to the little store, with the intention of investing Allen's thirty-five cents in groceries for our dinner, but there was nothing doing. The man's stock consisted mostly of pop and cigars, which articles he probably got from Los Angeles. "'How much for pop?' I asked. Fifteen cents a bottle, was the reply. A barrel of ginger snaps stood in one corner of the store. How much a pound? I asked, giving the cakes a wistful look. Twenty-five cents a pound, said the grocer. We left the store without purchasing anything, and made our way back to the cars, forced to accept the ill-given hospitality of the section foreman. That afternoon a lucky thought came to me. We yet had plenty of clothing, and why not auction it off? In my grip was a mouth-harp that I had bought in Bisbee. Allen, who was a good harmonica player, struck up several lively airs, and in a few minutes every man in the camp had gathered around us, including the foreman. 
some were popping and slapping their hands in applause and others were dancing jigs in time to the music i gave allen the signal to stop and opening up both our grips began auctioneering off small pieces of goods everything put up was sold to advantage though the smaller articles brought the best prices the harmonica, which had cost me twenty-five cents, caused the liveliest bidding, and was finally knocked down to a cowboy for eighty cents. The foreman secured a nice comb and brush at a bargain, and was so well pleased with the music, he invited us to take supper with him, and to play the harmonica again for him and his wife. About nine o'clock that night, a freight train stopped in Gila City, which we boarded with our grips and easily beat to Yuma. Yuma has a population of 7,000 Indians, Mexicans, and Americans, and like Bisbee, gambling forms a part of the revenue of the saloons. Most of the houses in Yuma are built of wood or brick, though there are a good many adobe houses occupied by the poorer classes. Some claim Yuma is 50 feet above the sea level. Others say it is 150 feet below the sea level. I don't know which of these statements is correct, but I do know that Yuma is by far the hottest town I was ever in. As early as half-past seven o'clock next morning, the sun began to get uncomfortably hot, and by nine o'clock both Alan and myself were suffering from the heat. We spent the biggest part of the day in the shade of the large reservoir building opposite the depot, and but a few feet from the Colorado River. That night, a Mexican living in one of the adobe houses near the railroad yards supplied each of us with a large bottle of water for the long 280-mile journey across the desert, but in dodging the brakeman while attempting to board a Los Angeles freight train, we became separated, and it was the last I ever saw of my friend Allen. I managed to hide in a car loaded with scrap iron. Only once did I leave this car. We reached the first division point, Indio, California, about three o'clock in the morning. My bottle of water had long since run dry, and I was once more beginning to suffer the acute pangs of desert thirst. With as little noise as possible, I slipped from the car and into the pump-house, which is about the only building of any kind that Indio contains. In fact, between Yuma and Indio, for a distance of one hundred and fifty miles, there isn't a single town, nothing but desert and cactus trees. The man in the pump-house filled my bottle from a hydrant, and, taking a big drink from a large tin cup, which I also filled from the hydrant, I hurried through the darkness to the scrap-iron car nearly a half-mile down the track. I was about crawling in, when a low groan from under the car attracted my attention. Peering under the car, I was amazed to see a man on the rods. "'For God's sake, give me a drop of water,' he begged piteously. I passed him the bottle of water and invited him to drink half of it. The poor fellow eagerly took a long pull at it, passing it back scarcely half full, with a grateful thank you. I could drink five bottles like that, he said, smacking his lips. The train now started, preventing further conversation, and I quickly crawled back into the scrap-iron car. The next day, about eleven a.m., we pulled into the yards at Los Angeles. As soon as the train stopped in the yards, I jumped out of the car and looked for the man on the rods, but he was gone. End of chapter 8